Well, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can turn in your Bibles there, or you can find the text starting on page 5 in your bulletin. We'll be looking at chapter 16 next week, but as Pastor Scott mentioned, we won't be doing it here. We'll, we'll be just really across the road at Jumeirah Creekside Hotel right here in Garhoot, either 4 or 7 p.m. But I do hope you'll come at 5.30. We want to welcome the Renew family uh, here just with joy. We're so glad that they're here. Renews, we love you. We're so glad that you're here. It's been a great first three days with you. We're hoping for many more in the coming days, and we're looking forward with expectancy to see what God will do in and through you here uh, in our midst. So we're just, we're just thrilled, and we want to celebrate that next week. Well, we began our study in 1 Samuel back in September. We've had a little break around Christmas and New Year's, but we've been walking chapter by chapter through this Old Testament narrative for the past few months. And along the way, it's been a little bit up and down for Israel, hasn't it? You know, some weeks we, we're studying and we're like, okay, Israel's got it. They're, they're doing well. They're following the Lord. They're seeking His face. And then there's other weeks... Well, we just seem like they just have lost it. We see up and down, up and down for this nation. And when the book started, it was in a difficult time. It was the time of the judges, the time where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was a wicked day. We saw greed, rape, there was incest, there was lust, there was pride, there was murder. But then in that darkness, right at the start of the book, we had a little, little light at the end of the tunnel, a little ray of light. There was a woman named Hannah. And Hannah was a sweet woman. She loved the Lord with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She had trouble conceiving, and she prayed. She prayed for a child. She prayed for a son that she could dedicate to the Lord. And the Lord provided her the son. She named him Samuel, and she took Samuel to live with the priests. Now, this sounds like a good idea, but the problem with the priests was that they were immoral. We had Eli, the high priest. Eli was lazy. Eli never sought to discern God's will. His sons were even worse. So Hophni and Phinehas, they were stealing meat that was to be sacrificed to the Lord. They were stealing meat they weren't supposed to eat. They were sleeping with the, with the, the women at the tabernacle gates. They were immoral. And these were the leaders of spiritual Israel. Samuel was, was there, but then there's war, there was fighting, there was battle. The Philistines attack Israel. Philistines were this mighty people, but Israel comes up with this not so good, actually really pretty horrible plan. They think, okay, well, we can't really defeat the Philistines on our own. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant. This was this, this visible symbol of God's presence in their midst. And they think, okay, let's take this ark. And if we take the ark with us into battle, then God will have to give us victory. See, what they were doing is they were using the ark like a rabbit's foot, like a good luck charm. They were seeking to twist God's arm. If we bring the ark in the battle, surely God won't let his glory be defeated. Well, we, we know they were soundly defeated by the Philistines. And the Philistines actually take the ark, they capture the ark, they take the ark back into their own camp. And do you remember what, what they did with it? Well, they, they set up the ark next to their god, Dagon. 
And remember, overnight, Dagon actually falls face first towards the ark. And so the next morning, they're all coming in to check on the ark, check on Dagon, and they're thinking, well, what, what happened to our God? And they think maybe it's surely a mistake. Maybe someone from the youth group came in and, and tipped over Dagon as a prank during the night. But it was no prank. They walked in, and they, now think about this, they, the Philistines, had to pick up their God, their idol, and set him back in place. I mean, think about it. When a false God or idol falls down, you have to pick him up. The idols have no life in and of themselves. They're actually dependent on man to feed them, to keep them alive. And it was even worse the next day. The next day they come in and now Dagon has no head. He has no hands. They've fallen off. And so the Philistines get scared and they start passing off the ark like a hot potato. Remember, oh, let's take it over to this Philistine town. Let's take it over oh, to that one. They keep passing it off. No one wants it because they start getting inflicted and afflicted with tumors, tumors all over their bodies, rats. Nobody likes rats. And the rats were everywhere. And so they passed the ark like a hot potato. Eventually they think enough is enough. We've got to get the ark out of here. We've got to send the ark back to Israel. But they think we've got, we got to send it with an offering. And so they decide, well... Let's make a gold or golden images of our tumors. I don't know how they did that. It seems a bit strange, but somehow they made images of their tumors with gold. They made golden rats, and they tie all this to the ark, and they put it on two cows. And they think to themselves, okay, here's a way that we can figure out whether Israel's God is behind this or not. We're going to put all this stuff, the offering, the ark, on these two cows, and we're going to send the cows off see what happens. And here's the trick. These two cows had just had babies. They just had calves. And so the natural instinct of these mama cows would be immediately when you let them go would be to turn around and go back to their babies there in the Philistine camp. But they said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to do this. But if the cows go the opposite direction, if the cows go to Israel, we will know that Israel's God, Yahweh, is behind this. And so they let these two new mama cows go. What did the cows do? Well, the cows, they dart off directly for Israel. I mean, in that passage, the cows were the most obedient creatures. They take the ark back. Well, the ark is back. Praise God. It's a good day in Israel. They celebrate. They throw a party. But as they were partying, some of them may have been thinking, hey, you know, I've always wanted to see what's inside the ark. So they open it. Before they knew it, 70 of them were dead. So Israel knew they were never, not even the high priest, they were never to peer inside the ark of the covenant. The ark showed that God is holy the party turns to a funeral. God gave clear instructions never to gaze in. The symbol is not a tourist attraction. It's not a photo booth for selfies. No, Israel should have known this. But they turn from one idol to another idol, this time to a human idol. They get the ark back, but they start looking around. They start looking at all the other nations, and they think to themselves, wait a minute. We want a king like all the other nations. We want to be just like them. Now, when asking for a new king, what they were doing was that they were 
rejecting the true king they already had. God graciously warns them of this choice. He says, an earthly king is going to take your grain. He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to take your boys and put them in his army. He's going to take your girls and make them perfumers and cooks. He'll take everything that's your best. Is this what you want? Well, they answer yes. And God gives them what they want. Sometimes God giving us what we want isn't a grace, but it's a judgment. At first, they were really excited. Saul's the perfect king. He's rich, he's handsome, and he's really, really tall. If he was on the basketball team, he would be the star. I mean, this was Mr. Israel. He looks great. But remember, while man looks at outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And there's nothing more to Saul than his outward appearance. He's filled with pride and fear. He disobeys God and thinks he knows better than God does. He makes rash oaths. He would have put his son to death for eating honey if it wasn't for the rest of Israel coming together against their king. And Saul was a lost leader. Well, that's where we find ourselves today. He's still going to be king after today, but this passage marks the official rejection of his kingship by God. This isn't a feel-good chapter. This is what happens to us when we reject God. We'll notice three things. That'll really serve as the outline in our passage this morning. We'll see vengeance, obedience, and repentance. That's our outline this morning. Vengeance, obedience, repentance. There's lots of ways to walk through this text. This is a classic way to to break up the text into these three ways. First, let's look at vengeance. Verse 1, Samuel reiterates that the Lord sent him to anoint Saul king of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, this gets our attention. Saul, listen. These are God's words. Verse 2, it's the Lord of hosts who's speaking. Hosts are the armies of the angelic realm. It's It's a reminder that Yahweh is sovereign and in control over everything. He's the everlasting God, as we sang about in the beginning of our service. So listen to him. And God says, I remember what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them. This is referring to the Amalekite attacks on Israel while they were traveling from Egypt towards the promised land. The Amalekites were nomadic raiders. They inhabited that desert in between the southern borders of Israel and Egypt. Well, the Israelites weren't a threat to them. They weren't trying to steal anything from them. They weren't trying to take any land from them. They were actually trying to get to their land after the Red Sea crossing. They were trying to make it to the promised land. But the Amalekites, they they give them a hard time. They persecute them. They seek to oppose them. And for this opposition to God's purposes, they were doomed to destruction. In Deuteronomy 25, Yahweh promises Moses that he'll blot out even the memory of Amalek, their leader, from under heaven. And the time for this has come. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 
wants a command to completely remove this evil people from the face of the earth. It's a holy war. Now, the verb there meaning utterly destroy means utterly destroy. It means to annihilate. It's used seven times in this passage. God's command could not have been more clear. Well, here's a little sidebar. I think we need to pause for just a minute. Reading these words are a little uncomfortable for us, aren't they? Is God asking Israel to kill all the men and women, to kill the children and the babies? If you're uncomfortable, this should make us feel uncomfortable. We don't rejoice at verses like this. They don't give us warm fuzzies inside, nor should they. They are sobering and sad verses. We don't rejoice at death. Historically, this wasn't abnormal. The destruction of an enemy was accepted in battle. Everyone did this. It wouldn't have shocked them the way it shocks us. But we're right to wonder, how can God do this? How could God command this destruction? Well, I think there are four things we need to consider. Number one, that God has authority over everything. He is the creator He is the maker and sustainer. He's in charge. He has full authority. He can do as he pleases without our approval or our consent or whether we like it or not or whether it makes us feel good or not or whether we understand or not. He has the right to take life and the right to give life as he pleases. But number two, God is incredibly gracious. He's sovereign over all, but he's incredibly gracious. God has authority But we have to pause and consider his grace and his mercy. I mean, the command to kill the Amalekites is hard to read precisely because of what we see throughout the scriptures and what we know about our God. Our God is a gracious God. You can't read the scriptures without noticing that he loves the hurting, that he cares for the weak, that he helps the poor, that he looks out for the oppressed and the persecuted, that he comforts the weary, that he has a special love for the widows and the orphans. Now, God's grace here leads them to incredible patience. Well, first, we can look at a number of examples. We can look back at Genesis and remember Sodom and Gomorrah. They're so wicked, and God's going to destroy them. And Abraham says, wait, 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 wait. What if we can find this many people and this many people? Would you you spare destruction? And God patiently listens to Abraham and waits. Here, God gives the Amalekites several hundred years to repent since their attacks. This is no flippant action. But these Amalekites have not changed their ways. Oh, Yahweh is a very patient God. He's pleading with his people. He pleads even with the wicked to repent. He doesn't rejoice in death even of the wicked. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 33. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Oh, God wants the wicked to turn. We see in Jonah, Jonah, this prophet via, some disobedience and via a little trip to a fish's belly, heads out to Nineveh. God sends him to Nineveh. Nineveh were the most wicked people on earth. They were incredibly evil, and yet God wanted to see them repent. God is a gracious God. 
Well, number three, we need to remember in this that all of us deserve God's justice. None of us deserve God's mercy. Sometimes the question's asked, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've asked it before. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you heard this? But we know as Christians that that's the wrong question. There are no good people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 says there are none who do good, not even one. There are none who are righteous. None of us deserve God's mercy. Even receiving the tiniest little act of God's mercy is more than we deserve. Well, the question isn't why were the Amalekites killed. The right question is why do we get to experience God's new mercies this morning? In light of our sin, why wasn't our fate the same as the Amalekites? Why do we get another day? See, when we remember this truth, we're not outraged that God, we rejoice and fall on our knees thankful to him for sparing us. Well, and then number four, the reality is the Amalekites were outright enemies of God. They were wicked people, forced prostitution, child sacrifice. They were killing their babies to appease their false gods. So God had asked Israel to kill everyone from birth to the elderly in order that there was no possibility for assimilation with his people. There would be no intermarrying, no joining in with them in their sin, no syncretism. But Nick, make no mistake, this judgment wasn't simply because they were Amalekites. It was because of their wickedness and their unrepentant sin. They were not destroyed because of their skin, but because of their sin. Anyone can come to God. Even the Amalekites could come to God in repentance, but they remained wicked. No friend, at first we might shrink back at the thought of God's vengeance, but it's actually God's vengeance that we take comfort in. Because we know as God's people, God will not forget his enemies. Now, no vengeance on God's enemies would mean no deliverance for God's people. So perhaps in a strange way, we take comfort that God is a just God and God will take vengeance in a holy and honorable way. So we see vengeance here. The second thing we see in the passage is this matter of obedience. That's the second point this morning, obedience. And think about the command. God gives Saul this command to destroy everything. God's reasons for destruction weren't for Israel's material gain, but for God's glory, for their holiness. And now this is kind of sad. Even the camels were to be destroyed. Now that cuts right to the heart to us here in Dubai, doesn't it? I love seeing when a herd of camels crosses the road, maybe on the way up north. You see these camels. They're cute, lovely camels. But the Amalekites used camels to raid cities. And God says everything, every memory for the from the Amalekites must go. And Saul responds well at first, right? He gets this big army, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And as he's doing that, he sends the Kenites out. He sends them out so they don't get destroyed. The Kenites were metal workers who showed Israel kindness when they were leaving Egypt. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. They get out of the way, and Israel goes to battle against the Amalekites. And they're victorious. They destroy them. Verse 8, Saul takes Agag, the king, alive, devotes to destruction all the people. But 
verse 9, but, and there shouldn't be a but here, but Saul spares Agag. He wasn't supposed to do that. And he spared the best sheep and the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs. He wasn't supposed to do that either. And listen to this. He spares all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Well, what did he destroy? Well, he despised what was worthless and devoted to destruction. He kept the good, got rid of the bad. Very convenient, King Saul. The point of the war wasn't to gain spoil. It wasn't to parade around a defeated king. It was to be faithful to God's ancient command to destroy this wicked people. Well, Saul interprets the command his own way. He thinks he knows better than God does. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Regret is a strong word. Do you remember another time we see the Lord regret? Maybe you recall back towards the beginning of Genesis right before the flood in the time of Noah, the Lord says that he regret mating, making man. Man had become so sinful. Sin was rampant. God expresses regret. Now, in its fullness, that word has the idea of deeply grieving. This doesn't mean here that it was a mistake, that God made a mistake, or that God doesn't know the future, that God doesn't know what's going to happen. Of course he did. Now, part of the reason in saying this is to show God's emotion. God is not without passion. He's not without emotion. Now, God is clearly aware of the future. It's clear that God's purposes all will come to pass. We have clear statements in Scripture that say this. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. No, God couldn't declare the beginning from the end if he had no knowledge of both. And then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus assures believers that he will care for them, that he will care for them. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. No, God is in control over every detail of our lives. He planned it, he will execute it. But just because God knows in advance what's going to happen doesn't mean that God won't experience emotion and even hurt and even grief when it does happen and come to pass. No, God really did grieve Saul's selection as king, just as he really did grieve man's sin at the time of the flood. Well, this should encourage us that our God is, is not nonchalant, that our God is not a robot, that our God is not without feelings, do you want a God with no emotions, a God who doesn't care, a God who is indifferent? Well, of course not. This is deeply encouraging. It isn't showing us God's lack of control, but his sorrow over sin. Yahweh is grieving over Saul's sin. Well, Samuel's grieving too, verse 11. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Well, there's anger, but it seems that his anger turns to tears. He cried all night. Oh, friends, it's okay to cry. Here's the spiritual leader of all of Israel, and he spends the night crying to God. 
He's saddened at Saul's actions. He's hurting for him. He's hurting for the nation. Perhaps he's even a bit confused as to what's happening. I mean, Samuel's the one who anointed Saul as king, and now everything is falling apart. It was a difficult night. A Redeemer Church, the Bible doesn't try to sugarcoat our faith. Now, to be a Christian doesn't mean it's happy, clappy all the time, or that everything is, is going well in our lives, earthly speaking. I mean, this week I did a couple hospital visits. I chatted with several members who are hurting in their jobs, others who are begging God for jobs, some who are in debt, some who are even hungry. There's others in relational tension. The Bible doesn't try to cover that stuff up. Though the Bible is, is real, the Bible doesn't try to pretend that to be a Christian means everything is awesome all the time. Now, to be a Christian doesn't mean we're strong because of our strength or that we're strong because of our circumstances, but that even in our weakness, that especially in our weakness, Christ is strong. That Christ is in us and working in us. Oh, friend, if you're hurting, cry out to God. If you're hurting, be honest. Open up your heart to the Lord when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. The Lord is at work in and through you. But we as a church, we don't need to pretend that everything is okay always. Oh, friend, cry out to God. Here we have the spiritual leader of Israel all night weeping before the Lord. And in verse 12, after a night of crying, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, this is crazy. Saul had the gall to set up a monument for himself after the victory. I mean, Samuel rides on up. And what are Saul's first words? A blessed be you. Guess what? Guess what? I've done it. I've kept the commandment of the Lord. I mean, you can imagine the scene. There's Saul just kind of just patting himself on the back. He's even excited to see Samuel, isn't he? Brother, I did it. I did it. We won. Now, what's Saul expecting here? He's expecting some praise. He's expecting a few words of affirmation. Oh, oh, Saul, you're such a great king. How about we go off for some biryani and chai to celebrate? You did an amazing job. You're the best king ever, Saul. Well, instead, Samuel's comeback is bold. Verse 14. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. See, Saul, you're saying that you're obedient, but I'm hearing fruit of your disobedience. I'm hearing the sheep. Those are sheep from the Amalekites. You took those sheep, didn't you? You're telling me one thing, but I'm hearing another thing. And Saul says, well, verse 15, they, not accepting responsibility, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Notice again, 
Saul's blaming everyone else. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Saul, stop. Just stop, Saul. Don't say anything else. There's nothing good coming out of your mouth right now. Just be quiet. Let me tell you what's happening. Saul, you were sent on a mission from God to destroy the Amalekites. Why then did you not obey the Lord, your God? Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? See, Saul was supposed to destroy everything. Saul, you were supposed to completely destroy every last thing. When Saul responds again, not getting the point, verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, he's making the excuse again, Samuel, it's the people. It's the people. They took the spoil of sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. No, I've been great, Samuel. I've been obedient. Okay, okay. The people did a couple of things that weren't perfect. But hey, we did all right. I did great. You see my monument? You see how, how shiny it is? Isn't it nice? Isn't it a good monument? Well, is Saul repentant here? What's the third thing we want to look at? We've seen vengeance. We've seen obedience. We want to Take a few minutes and look at repentance. Well, watch this. You want to see a formula for how we make excuses for sin. Well, this is Theology of Sin 101. Now, you and I, we don't do this, but one day we'll meet someone who does, right? So we want to we wanna get this. We want to understand this. Well, Saul's caught red-handed, isn't he? What does he do? He does three things, and these three things are things that have continued from Adam and Eve on through the ages, including you and including me. He defends his sin. Well, the first step in defending your sin is to blame others. We've already touched on that. I pointed out the language as we read. They took the spoil. They took the sheep. They took the oxen. I'm not responsible for what I've done. Oh, God, I didn't, I didn't take the fruit. It was that woman that you gave me. Oh, and you know what? There was a beautiful fire. It was a campfire. We were roasting marshmallows, and we, we kind of threw a little gold in, and out came a golden calf. It was amazing, miraculous. You should have seen it. It wasn't my fault. Now, this is telling here, if Saul really thought all of this was a good thing, wouldn't he have said, I? I did it. I took the spoil. I took the sheep. I did it. Instead, he passes off the blame, or at least he would have said, we. But he gives all the credit for the sin away. He passes off the blame. That's the first step. A second step in defending our sin is to rationalize it. Saul adds, well, they took the best for God. They weren't trying to get rich. It was about Yahweh. Well, we say, well, I only did that because I wanted to help God. 
The only reason I went to Las Vegas to gamble was to help with the giving with our church budget. The only reason I cheated on the numbers at work were because they were withholding money from my paycheck and I I needed to provide for my family. you, You rationalize your sin. You blame others, you rationalize. A third step to defending our sin is to be religious. In some ways, this sounds good, doesn't it? Samuel, we took the best, the very best of the sacrifices in order to give to Yahweh, in order to give to God. It's not for us, it's for God. That's why we did it. It's a further rationalization. It's a rationalization in the name of religion. We're really religious. We have really good motives. Well, does this sound familiar to us? We do the same things, maybe not in the same language, maybe not with sacrifices, but we make excuses for our sin by pointing out to the good, maybe even the religious good that'll come out of it. Maybe we use it to defend our actions, to get defensive. We say, he made me do it. Maybe as a parent, you really lost your anger, took it out on your children, and you say, maybe you think, oh, if... If they had just been nicer, then I wouldn't have lost my cool and let my anger turn into sin. And you blame them. Or maybe you think to yourself, if only I hadn't been sick or faced physical pain or been oppressed or been persecuted, uh, maybe if I hadn't been depressed, maybe if I had more money, maybe if I had this or that, then I wouldn't have sinned in this way. And you blame your circumstances. You blame people, you blame circumstances. It's always something or someone's fault. Well, how does Samuel respond to this defense given by Saul? Well, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. No religious ceremony or religious devotion can make up for our lack of obedience. God wants our hearts. We can't rely on ritual sacrifice when obedience is required. Well, God wasn't asking for their sacrifices here. He was asking for their obedience. Unfortunately, religious ceremony has been a substitute for religious devotion since the beginning of time. We can be fooled into thinking if we do some kind of religious activity, well, then everything will be okay. The problem is no ceremony can change our hearts. No ceremony can fix the problem in our hearts. Baptism doesn't cleanse our hearts. It's a picture of an already cleansed heart. Maybe you've sinned all week and you think, okay, if I can just get here on Friday, if I can just get in this room, if I can just sing these songs, if I can just just be among God's people, then okay, my sin really doesn't matter. God God will look at this obedience here on Friday morning. Everything will be okay. Or maybe you think, if I just put a little more in the offering, if I make it to midweek community group or Bible study, if I just spend a little time in prayer, if I get one of the pastors, to pray for me personally. If I just do any number of these things, eh, my sin won't really matter. It'll it'll cover my sin. But no religious action can make up for our rebellion. Nothing Saul could say could defend him before God. 
And sadly here, in these verses, Saul's rejected from being king. We can't miss the sadness of these words. Well, Saul responds, verse 24, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, is Saul repentant here? Earlier, we saw some things, but here, how about in these last couple of verses, is Saul repentant? I wonder, as you were reading this in your community group, I wonder if you wrestled with it at this point in your study. It's because Saul's using some religious words. He's speaking the language of Christianese. I wonder how many of you know Christianese. It's not an official language. You can't find a book to learn it in the bookstore. But many of us know this language. It's what you speak when you speak in the lingo that only another Christian would understand. It's something that might sound strange to everyone else. You know how we talk about walking by faith and not by sight. You talk about having fellowship with your brothers and sisters from around the world. And no one talks like that. We have quiet times. What we mean by that is we have time of personal devotion in the Bible and in prayer. The lingo is Christianese. Now, Christianese talks about how you walk by the Spirit, how the Spirit's leading you and how God is speaking to you. Maybe you've heard about being a Proverbs 31 woman or about popcorn prayer. Now, these things might be true. They might sound good. If you're a Christian, this is often the lingo that we use. However, saying these things is not necessarily an indicator of our heart reality behind these words. You can sound like a Christian and not be a Christian. You can sound religious. You can sound like you have devotion to the Lord. You can know the right words. You can have been in church all your life. You can even read the Bible. You can know about the things of God and even sound spiritually eloquent, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know God personally. You can sound religious, but not be changed. Here, Saul is speaking Christianese. He says some of what's right. I mean, think about it. He talks about his sin. He even names his sin here. He says he's transgressed the Lord's commandments. He asks for pardon. I mean, these are big spiritual words. Earlier, he he talks about making sacrifices to God. Again, all these things, Saul sounds pretty good. If we didn't look a little more closely here, we might think, okay, well, at this point, maybe, maybe Saul is repentant. Maybe he's following God. Well, several clues to this, several clues as to as to why Saul is not repentant. If Saul was truly repentant, you would think that Samuel would accept it. Samuel is a spiritually discerning man. He doesn't even flinch. Another bad sign is that it takes Saul a long time to even say these words. Samuel was quite persistent. Now, it doesn't mean we can't be repentant after a long period of of time, of, of insistence on those around us. But it took a lot to get Saul to even say these words. It's also interesting that Saul never pleads with God for forgiveness. A little more subtle, but did you see that? He's only asking Samuel to pardon him. It appears Saul had no personal relationship with Yahweh. Further down in verse 30, speaking to Samuel, 
He calls Yahweh. What does he call Yahweh? Your God. Not our God, not my God. He's your God. And maybe most obvious at the end of the passage, what's Saul's greatest concern? It's not for God's glory, but for his own. Verse 30, he begs Samuel to show him honor so that the people will think well of him. He reaches out and rather pathetically, he tears a portion of Samuel's robe. He asks Samuel to honor him before the people. He thinks Samuel's presence with him before all the people will make it look like everything's okay. Well, Samuel relents. Here at the end, he actually relents. He seems to follow Saul's request, perhaps out of mercy or maybe out of a kindness to the people to keep things stable so that the the people of Israel don't, don't freak out at what's happening. Well, the tearing of the robe was a symbol that the kingdom is being torn away from Saul. Saul's gonna continue on as king for a little while, but it's gonna be torn away from him and his line and given to his neighbor. Now, Saul's not repentant here. Well, we're left with a question, though. Saul's not repentant. What does true repentance look like? What should Saul have done? How do we, as Christians, confess our sin? Well, first of all, true repentance isn't motivated primarily by escaping the consequences of sin. That's worldly sorrow. True confession is made to the Lord and seeks forgiveness by the blood of Christ. Genuine repentance does the following. It makes no excuses. It owns the sin. It realizes that one's greatest offense is against the Lord God, the Almighty. It understands that forgiveness comes only through the blood of Christ and believing in God's promise of salvation through the cross. Now, Saul made excuses. Saul doesn't own his sin. Saul doesn't plead with God. Saul doesn't trust in the sacrifice that was to come. Now, true repentance turns to God and says, I've done it. I've done it. I'm at fault. It's completely my fault. I've sinned against you, and I need forgiveness. That's a godly sorrow. Oh, fellow Christian, if you're engaged in some unrepentant sin, there's something that you're clinging to, something that you're holding on to. Let it go. Make no excuses Don't point to people. Don't point to your circumstances. Point to yourself and plead with the Lord God Almighty for forgiveness. If you do, he will. If you're here and you're not yet a believer, this is what you do to become a Christian. You raise your hand and you look back at all of your sins of the past and you say to God, that's me. I see now clearly that I've sinned against the holy God. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. You trust in him to save you and he will. And when you do that, your life is changed. See, true repentance always leads to obedience. We never see that with Saul. We do see that with Samuel. Samuel's response here at the end is to do what Saul should have done. Now, this would be rather humorous if it wasn't so sad. Here we come back to good old King Agag, king of the Amalekites. And at this point, he's pretty happy He would have known the rules of war. He would have known that he should have been killed earlier, but he's alive and it's a happy day. Things are great. Verse 32, he even says, surely the bitterness of death is past. Well, he spoke a little too soon, didn't he? Samuel says, bring him to me. 
And without delay, without a word, Samuel just hacks him to pieces. It's a bad day for King Agag. With that, Saul's official kingship comes to an end, with the Lord one more time expressing his regret. Again, not the idea of changing his mind, not the idea of making a mistake, but a deep grieving. Israel's first king had failed. Saul had failed miserably to lead God's people. In Redeemer Church, while there may be better kings in the Bible, even better kings on earth than King Saul, the reality is not just King Saul, but all kings will eventually fail us. There's only one perfect king, one who will never let us down. Saul failed to bring God's judgment upon the people, but years later, another king, fully man and fully God, would come and bring judgment perfectly. At the end of our passage, Saul's removed from his kingship for disobedience, but years later, there's a voice from heaven saying of the true king, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Saul was a proud king. Saul wanted to look good in his people's eyes, but King Jesus is a humble king, a king who is obedient to death, even death on the humiliating and shameful cross. Saul feared what the people would do to him, but we have a greater King Jesus who didn't fear the people. He never feared flesh and blood. He wasn't afraid of what people could do to him. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, but he knew that going to the cross while the hardest thing was the best thing, and he marched to the cross for the benefit of his people and for the glory of God. Saul allowed the people to remain in their sins so that he could look good, so that he could have peace. Jesus loved us so much that he gave up his reputation and even gave up his life for us. Redeemer Church, we have a greater king. We have a perfect king We have a king who we can trust. We have a king who's with us in our greatest trials. We have a king who knows every hair on our heads. We have a king who comforts us when we're weary. We have a king who has emotions, perfect emotions, who loves us and cares for us. We have a king who marched to the cross to display that love and to save us from the enemy of sin and death. Oh, Redeemer Church, this is a king we can trust. As a church, let's together follow him by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have a king who won't selfishly pursue his own interests. But we have a king who loves us and gave up his life for us. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your son to redeem us from our sins. Would we as a church make much of Jesus our king this week? Would we exalt him by our faith? Would we exalt him by our actions? Would we exalt him by our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.